Well, so we had a vote this week in the office and in staff meeting, and I want you to know that, uh, that, that I lost. It, it, was, it was me against all of them. And so since I lost, you'll know that there's a new piece of equipment um, in, in the auditorium. I don't know if you guys can see it back there, but on the back wall, there is a, a clock. And I just want it to be perfect. I, I just want it known that I don't care. <laughs> I made it through the entire first service without looking at it one time. <laughs> if somebody could get Dean off the lot, yeah, I can see it, yeah. Enter the Christmas season, talking about uh, singing Christmas carols that are very meaningful to us, and no doubt you've been, begun thinking about gifts, gift giving and gift receiving. Let me ask you a question. What is it that makes a gift special? What is the criteria, as you think about those gifts, what is the criteria to make it special? Tana and I were first married. We lived in a little duplex in Springfield, Missouri. Our first Christmas came. I wanted to get her something special. Grew up loving dogs. She always had one in the house. So I got permission um, from our landlord to get her a puppy. As long as we didn't keep it in the house, had to keep it in the garage uh, or outside, that was fine. I went to the pet store and picked out this cute little cocker spaniel. I wasn't very bright then. Uh, never, no. How many of you, have, did anybody have a Cocker Spaniel? I'm, I'm so sorry. Picked up the puppy on Christmas Eve, arranged for our best friends who happened to be, live on the other side of the duplex uh, to keep it overnight. The next morning, the four of us gathered around the tree, began opening presents. Tana's first gift, just married now, first gift was a space heater. It's cold in southern Missouri. I, I thought maybe our little puppy would need one in the garage. You can imagine the look on her face when she opened a space heater. She told me later that she immediately thought, what a loser. <laughs> and the second, that's all right, I knew. I just smiled. The second gift was a bag of puppy chow. At which point our neighbor opened the bedroom door, this little blonde puppy, big red bow, came running out, tripping over the, over the bow and ran right up to Tana. Woo! Tana was surprised. I scored big points. <laughs> that was a very, very special gift, at least for the moment it was, after all, a Cocker Spaniel. Let me, let, let me ask you, what, what is it that makes a gift special? Would it be that? Would it be an unexpected surprise? I mean, I suppose that would be one characteristic, unexpected surprise. I, I thought of another um, surprise gift uh, th that I received, 2005. Tana and I were privileged to take a trip with Paul and Karen Dagger to the Middle East, one of the best trips, maybe the best trip of our lives, two and a half weeks there. We visited Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Israel, got back. First, first day back. Now, this is July. This is not Christmas. First day back in the office, Paul Branch showed up. He asked me about the trip. 
Then he said, oh, why don't you come with me for just a minute? We, we walked outside, and there sitting in the, in the parking lot, outside of our double wide, outside of the parking lot was a brand new Subaru Forester with a big blue bow on the steering wheel. It's yours. Apparently, several people in the church got together to buy me a new car. Thank you, Bob Barker. It was an unbelievable gift. I mean, talk about surprise. And so, as I thought this week about that, it, it revealed a couple of more criteria, I think, for a special gift. Yeah, it was a big surprise, but secondly, that was costly. I mean, that involved some great sacrifice. And thirdly, I want to be very, very clear on this, I did not deserve it. I, I've enjoyed it, especially with the winters that we have around here, but I did not deserve it. And yet... As, as wonderful as that gift was, I, I got to thinking about that. car is about six years old now, has almost 100,000 miles. N no, I'm not stumping for another car. <laughs> I, I, I drive this one very gratefully, and I drive until the wheels fall off. But, but eventually, that wonderful, surprising, undeserved, sacrificial gift will find its way to a junkyard not unlike that puppy, sorry, uh, that was 30 years ago, died, I'm sure. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> let me tell you this morning, let me, let me tell you this morning about a special gift that I suggest meets all of the criteria. Listen, a wonderful um, surprise sacrificial, undeserved, but now listen, never-ending gift. It's found in our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue studying the book. Turn there. Let me, re let me remind you of the context. You see, th this passage has always been one of my favorites. Even though this is the very first time that I've ever preached through um, the book of Ephesians, I've actually preached this text here several times. But, but I have to tell you that preaching it today in its context makes this text incredible. I've I, I preached it several times. I missed a lot. It's unbelievable. Remember, we just finished chapter 1 where Paul gave um, his thanksgiving for the Ephesians, for their faith and for their love. Then he told them that he was praying for them, that they would know God more deeply, more intimately, specifically that they would know the hope of his calling, that they would know the glory of his inheritance, which is the saints, and that they would know God's great power, this power that was at work in them. He wanted them to know that. And so last week, Paul began to talk about that great power. He says, it's that power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's that power that seated um, Jesus at God's own right hand in heavenly places. That, that place that's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Paul's way of saying far above every conceivable demonic enemy. This would have been an encouragement, remember, to his Ephesian uh, readers who had been involved in, the, in their past lives in the dark magic arts, the, the, the occult. But, but, but it was this power that not only did that, but it put all things under Jesus' feet. It's that power that made him head over the entire universe to the church for the benefit of the church and to include the church. This was an amazing, these were amazing displays of God's power, this power that is at work in the lives of believers. How? 
Well, Paul goes on in chapter 2 to tell us. Please notice. See, we go from chapter 1 to chapter 2. We take a pause. We shouldn't. Please notice how, if you've opened it, how chapter 2 begins. It begins with a conjunction, and. And you. Word is in the emphatic. Not only has God's power been displayed in His Son. Now listen, it has been displayed in you. Look at the text with me, and as we read it, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul is building some intentional suspense. It's not unlike waiting for Christmas morning for that special gift, all that suspense building until you finally get to open the gift. Only this one, the waiting is not quite so, so nice. The second thing I want you to notice is when we get to the, finally get to the gift, that he, that he begins to unwrap for us in verse 4, it should, the gift should sound very familiar to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following say this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we, this doesn't sound very gift-like, does it? Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Thank God for verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. Does this look familiar? And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing, undeserved, sacrificial, surprising, and now look at, in the ages to come, a never-ending gift. Did, 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 you, did you catch the suspense that he builds in those first few verses? We're going to talk about it. And did you notice that God did some of the same things for you that he did for his own son? In fact, he did it through his son. Yeah, they're a little bit different. We'll talk about that. But, but these are some of the same magnificent displays of his great power in you. Let me give you the outline as we jump into the text. We're going to see our undeserving condition. He's going to spend a lot of time talking about that. He's building suspense. In fact, he's building some angst. And then he's going to finally get to God's undeserved gift. And then he's going to tell us why, what his purpose was. Let's start with that first point, our undeserving condition. And by that, I mean our condition, which, our condition, which made us undeserving people. We did not deserve this gift. As I said, Paul starts with the emphatic, and you. He's going to show how God's power is at work in us. But first, he sets this suspenseful stage. You see, verses 1 to 7 are another one of those long sentences in the book of Ephesians. One sentence um, in the Greek. And we don't get to the subject of the sentence until verse 4. Talk about a run-on. And we don't get to the verbs, the action of the sentence, until verses 5 and 6. So, Verses 1 to 3 sets the stage for this dramatic action that is going to take place. The revelation of God's power in a dramatic way in this, well, in this demonstration of this power in, in you. Notice, 
You were, or really more literally, you being, you being dead in your tres- trespasses and sin. Now, who was, who was you? Well, Paul obviously is talking to his readers, the Ephesians, but he's going to make it abundantly clear he's talking about everybody. Everyone who's ever lived has been dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins, somewhat synonyms, um, are both words which speak of a deliberate and willful false step which results in falling short of God's standard of perfect holiness, falling short of God's glory. You remember that before Ephesians, Paul had just written Romans, that book we just studied. In Romans, Paul's explanation of the gospel, he spends the first three chapters, not the first three verses, first three chapters, talking about the need for the gift, the need for the gospel, how everyone, doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter who you are in this room, the average person, just kind of the run-of-the-mill person, pretty much like everybody else, the good person. You think yourself pretty good, good for you, the good person. And then the religious person, I think you think yourself pretty religious, good for you, even brings you into this indictment. He says all of us, doesn't matter who it is, average person, good person, religious person, we are all inherently evil. Remember how he concluded that argument. Romans chapter 3, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's religious people, so that, here's the conclusion of his three chapters, so that, here we go, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul takes every person who has ever lived before the bar of God's perfect justice and finds them and pronounces them guilty, sinful, condemned. Well, the question in our text um, today is when he says, you being dead, when, when were we dead? I mean, was there a time that we were alive and became dead? Or have we always been dead? Were we born dead? Paul suggests it's that one in Romans chapter 5 where he says, when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him, and therefore we inherited both the sin and guilt of Adam, and so death passed to all people, both spiritual and physical death. And that means we were all born sinners. Not only were we born sinners, it actually gets worse. We were not only born sinners, we went on to do what our nature requires. We sinned, and we sinned a bunch. We practiced sin. It's not a very positive condition. We were born spiritual corpses. Someone told me after the first service that uh, their pastor back in, she said at the beach, I'm not sure where that is, but at the beach, preaching this text, had a coffin in the front of the auditorium. It's you. Dead. Nothing you can do about your condition. It goes on in verses 2 and 3 to talk about how we practiced sinfulness. You see, as our sinfulness was acted out in life, there were three evil influences that acted on me, the world, the devil, and the flesh. The world around me, the devil, the demonic forces, and then my own flesh. Sometimes people ask me, is it, the, is it the environment, the evil environment that makes people sinners, or is it the evil sinners that makes the environment evil? And the answer is, yeah. The answer is both from this text. Look at it with me. 
We were dead in trespasses and sin, in our rebellion against the holy God in which we walked. The word for walk in Paul speaks of a way of life. Our way of life was according to the course, more literally, the age of this world. He, he, in another place, he describes it as this present evil age. We understand this world is fallen and it's broken. This world doesn't work right. It is collectively evil. And this evil world system exerts its influence on us so that we walk according to its evil dictates. I don't have to convince you of that. I mean, just, just look around. Watch TV. Listen to music. Turn on the radio. Read some terrible books. You know, the ones that receive awards? You can almost count on it. If it receives some award, read it, and it'll be evil. The nightly news chronicles our world's evil. It affects us. Here's how it affects us. We walked in the way that we saw. The world helped us pick our evil. We saw it on display. We liked it. Said, I like that one. Not only that, secondly, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That is this evil spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Who is this prince of the power of the air? Several verses in the New Testament that talk about how that is Satan. He's called the prince or the ruler of demons. He's the god of this world, things like that. Satan is the prince of the power of the air who exerts his evil influence on people. I'm not sure exactly how he does it. It might be possession. It might be um, oppression, it might be just presenting temptation. Somehow, the, the enemy, Satan, and his evil forces bring evil. Last week, we saw that word power is a class of evil demons, along with rule and authority and, and dominion, resides in the heavenly places. The idea then was that demonic spirits are immaterial, and therefore they are in the air, the prince of the uh, the ruler of the air. Their abode is the air around us. Makes sense to me. Last part of verse 2 says, it says actually one of two things. Either these evil spirits work on our humanity or, or uh, they work on our spirits. These evil spirits work on our spirits. Same difference, same end result. It's this. Works on us such that all humanity can be characterized by disobedience. Paul actually calls us, here's what we were, here's your title, sons and daughters of disobedience. I want to remember, I want to remind you, who's that? Everybody. Being dead in trespasses and sin, we were influenced by this evil world and, this evil, and the evil God of this world. But do not for a moment think you can blame all of your evil choices on external influences. Verse 3. The third enemy of our soul is us. Among them, we too all, notice no exception, Paul includes himself, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, we cannot say, well, it, it was my environment. I grew up in a really bad family. I, I, I grew up in a bad neighborhood. You should have seen my neighbors. Maybe they're saying the same thing about you. You should see my classmates. You should see what I was 
forced to grow up in. The world made me who I am. Can't say that. You can't even say the devil made me do it, as popular as that is. The truth is, our own sinful depravity caused us to choose our sin. We looked at all of the wonderful sin around us, kind of looked at it, admired it, picked it up, and said, I'll take, I'll take lying for 500, Alex. Throw in a little anger and pride and lust, kind of like that too. We lived according to the lusts and desires of our flesh. We wanted to sin. We loved it. We chose it. We indulged in it. It was in our flesh. But it wasn't just in our flesh. He takes it further. It was in our mind. In other words, our sinful choices were reasoned out. That doesn't mean you can't, that means you can't just say, well, I wasn't thinking. Yes, you were. We didn't just act according to our fleshly impulses. Our minds reasoned out sinful choices. That's why James says in his book, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one, that's all of us, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is a deplorable, terrible condition that we find ourselves in, or maybe I should say a deplorable condition you find yourself in. Maybe you find yourself frequently giving in to the evil around you. Maybe you find yourself satisfying the lusts, the cravings of your flesh all the time, and you like it. The culpable and accountable result is we deserved nothing good. We were undeserving, frankly, of anything except... Well, Paul tells us at the end of verse 3, here's what we deserve, God's righteous wrath. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of humankind. We were by nature. It was in our makeup. It was in all of us. There were no exceptions. We were born that way, sinful, and, and then we acted on our sinful flesh such that we deserved wrath. Wrath, we know, is the, is the holy outpouring of God's righteous anger, condemnation, and just judgment. That is what we deserved. The picture is bleak. The, 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 the prospects were dark. The text does not end there. We move to our second point. Having been roundly and rightly condemned, we move to point two of the most, or we move to point two where we see two of the most wonderful words in the Bible. When we were in this condition, nothing that we could do, lying in a coffin, but God. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, nothing we could do. When we walked according to the evil dictates of this world, the forces of evil, and our sinful flesh so that we were deserving nothing but wrath. When it would have been, listen to me, when it would have been perfectly holy and right for God to send the entire kit and caboodle of us to hell, to hell with you, I'm done with you, and He would have been right to do it because we deserved His righteous wrath. But God. 
God has given us an undeserved gift. It was surprising. It was amazing. It was sacrificial. It was undeserved. And it will last forever, never to be found buried, never to be found lying around in a junkyard. But God... You see, we finally, in verse 4, get to the subject of the sentence. Having built, set up the deplorable condition of humankind, every one of us, Paul finally introduces the main actor. Without wanting to sound trite, it is now enter the knight in shining armor. It is now the, the hero rides in on a white horse. When we were dead, hopeless, helpless, but God... And then Paul continues to build the suspense. I mean, he could have said, but God, who's really holy and angry. That'd be true. But he introduces three attributes about God which produce this action toward us. First, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy. Do you understand that? Do you understand those three verses that we just read? We did not deserve rich mercy. Being rich in mercy. Not just, he's not just merciful. He's full of mercy. He's rich in mercy. You remember that mercy is not getting what we deserved. It's not getting what we deserve. Listen, when you're found guilty in a court of law, we hear sometimes of throwing yourself at the mercy of the court. That means asking for the sentence to be lenient or, or not getting what you deserve. This, this word mercy carries with it the idea of showing compassion or pity toward those who don't deserve it and, and who are suffering. We were suffering in our deadness. He felt compassion. We, 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 we deserved wrath, and he dispensed mercy. Not only was his mercy the impetus behind his action, which we'll finally get to, but his, notice secondly, it was because of his great love with which he loved us. The word love, we, we, we uh, uh, defined in chapter 1, is, is that love which has the highest good of the object loved. And, and Paul uses both the noun and the verb for emphasis, that great love with which he loved us. This was great love. This was much love. Reminds us of, uh, of Romans 5.8. When we were still dead in transgressions, while he demonstrates his own love toward us while we were still sinners, still dead, corpses. What is there to love about a corpse? Christ died for us. Throughout this passage, Paul is building suspense. He, gives, he goes for three verses with this of clauses and phrases describing our deplorable condition. He finally gets to the subject, the great actor, verse 4. We being dead, how dead were we? Dead, dead, dead. But God, the one who is rich in mercy and great in love, not done. Paul says, he's the one who shows grace. That's the end of verse 5. By grace, you have been saved. And then he's going to talk about that in verses 8 to 10. We'll save that for last week. But we know that grace is getting what we um, don't are getting what we don't deserve. So, so, so God acts in mercy, grace, and love. These three attributes, three descriptions. This describes his action, but what is it that he does? 
We finally get to the three main verbs in verses 5 and 6. Paul intentionally connects these three words, with a, actually with a prefix uh, that means together with. These three verbs, look at them. His first action, because of these wonderful attributes, his first action, because of his grace, love, and mercy, he made us alive together with Christ. Because of his grace, mercy, and, and love, he raised us up together with Christ. And because of his grace, mercy, and love, he, he seated us together with Christ. I mean, I mean look at those. Those actions should, should, should look vaguely familiar. These are the ways that God demonstrated his power in Christ back in chapter 1. Chapter 2, again, always been one of my favorites, much richer in the context. Paul says, I want you to know more deeply and more intimately um, God's power at work in believers. Let me tell you about his power. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that exalted and seated uh, Christ at God's right hand. And Paul now says, and you. God demonstrated this same power in you. When you were dead, too, he made you alive. Just like he made Jesus alive. When you were dead, he raised you up. Just like he raised Jesus up. And when he raised you up, he seated you in the heavenly places just like he seated, just like he seated Jesus. All of this is together with Christ, an amazing gift. He made you alive together with Christ. Paul talked about this in, in Romans chapter 6. We were buried with Christ. And it's very interesting. He's actually talking about baptism in, in Romans chapter 6. And we're going to end that way uh, today. We were buried with Christ, raised with Christ to walk a new life. This, this being made alive is this idea of regeneration. Uh, Jesus used the word born again in John chapter 3. We've been made alive. Christ was physically dead, raised by the power of God to life. We were spiritually dead, raised by the same power of God to life. This is an amazing miracle. Every once in a while someone will say to me, you know, I just don't see God doing the same miracles today that he used to do. Open your eyes. Every time a person is saved, they are raised from the dead. I want to suggest to you that it's even a greater miracle than raising someone physically spiritually dead, and God says, wake up. Second, having made us alive, he raised us with Christ. Again, Romans chapter 6 says the same thing. Since we were made alive with Christ, as we live with resurrection power to walk a new life, we have a new foundability. Now listen, remembering verses 1 to 3, we have a new foundability to say no to sin, to say no to trespasses, and to say yes to righteousness. I want you to understand that we were dead in sin. We were under the powerful influences of this evil world and, and the forces of evil led by Satan and even our own evil fallen flesh. But now having been made alive, we've been raised with Christ and we can actually walk a new life. You were dead before. You couldn't. You can now. Not only that, here Paul takes it actually further than Romans chapter 6. He says, we've been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, not only have we been raised with Him, we're seated with Him. What does this mean? This speaks of our current position with Christ. We are currently seated with Him right now, spiritually in heaven. And, the, and this would have been a major point for His readers who had been under the demonic forces of the occult. He wants, to, he wants them to say, no longer. You're not under that anymore. You've been seated with Christ 
positionally, so you don't need to fear. Remember I said that last week, you don't, need to, you don't need to fear because you're with Christ above every power and authority and dominion and ruler. We're in Christ. He's the hope of glory. He's in us. Greater is he than is in us than he that's in the world. You understand what Paul is saying? You have the ability through your participation with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, that's Romans 6, and now exaltation, you're seated with him, you can defeat the world. You can defeat the devil, and you can defeat even your own sinful fallen flesh. Why? Why has God done all of this? Well, because He's rich in mercy. Y yeah. Well, because of the great love with which He loved us. Y yeah. But, but point three in our conclusion, God had a very specific purpose in mind. Look at it with me, verse 7. So that, there, here's the purpose. So that in the ages to come, He might, let me summarize, He might show off. So that's what it says. So that He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I suggest this takes us back to the, back to the beginning. This is a great gift. I gave that cute little puppy to Tana. Nothing compared to God's gracious gift. Puppy's dead. You, 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 your, your gift to me, wonderful, nothing compared to God's gracious gift. Car's on his way to the junkyard. God's gracious gift in the ages, and he uses the word ages. Typically, we think of this age and the age to come. Paul makes it plural. It doesn't matter how many ages there are. At every point in the future, God is going to be able to point to us and say, there you go. There are the, there's the proof. There's the treasure. The, there are the trophies of the surpassing riches of my grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. You'll never be able to question it. And it makes it all about him. It's his grace forever and ever, all ages to come, we, we will be the proof of God's surpassing. And, and, and Paul's being very intentional here because we saw that word surpassing back in, in verse 19 when he introduced this whole topic. I, I want to tell you about God's, I want you to know God's surpassingly great, His immeasurably great power. It's in God's surpassingly great, His immeasurably great grace toward us because of Christ. Now listen, for all of eternity, we will be trophies of His grace. That's what He says. We'll be trophies of His grace. But I want you to think about that with me before you get too big-headed. What do trophies do? Here at the church, we, get, we, get, we have our trophies uh, from, from various athletic enterprises. Do you know where our trophies are? They're on a, only the men know, they smile. Uh, because they're on a table in the bathroom. It's about where they belong. <laughs> Trophies sit on a shelf, and they point to what someone did. We will be trophies in heaven forever pointing to what someone else did. We didn't deserve it. We deserved wrath. We were dead. He made us alive. We were dead. He raised us up with Christ. 
We were seated, all right, with sinners and scoffers in the filth of our own ungodly choices that we loved. And now He has seated us with Christ so that all of Christ's enemies, which are our enemies, by the way, are beneath Christ's feet and therefore beneath ours. Do you see what, Christ, uh, what Paul is saying here? This is an incredible, amazing, sacrificial, s- surprising, un- undeserved, now listen, never-ending gift. Father, we are, we're overwhelmed. Uh, we've, we've never received a gift like this one, not, not, even, not even close. I mean, you, you, you've, you've given it to us because of your mercy, grace, and love. When we deserved your wrath, you loved us. You made us alive, seated us with Christ. So we celebrate your goodness in Christ's name. Amen.